1: Fitness involves a lifestyle change, but where do you begin? Has a family history of cardiovascular disease or diabetes made you decide to change your diet or make time for exercise? Connecticut resident Mubaraka Ibrahim watched her mother struggle with diabetes. It spurred her to become active and to eat healthier. Today, Ibrahim is a New Haven-based entrepreneur, a health and happiness coach, who helps women, including Muslim women, change their diet and exercise habits. Ibrahim has a book coming out next month. It's called MR40 Method. I recently spoke to her in studio about her upbringing and her career. Mubaraka, Ibrahim,
0: welcome to where we live. Thank you. Thank you for having
1: me. Uh, We're talking with you today because you're a New Haven entrepreneur. Tell us about your career that you have established here in Connecticut. I understand you're
0: a fitness expert. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Um, It's so funny because when people ask questions like that, it's almost like I I don't know where to start. So what part of my career? (laughs) Um, so I am a health and fitness expert here in New Haven, uh, the New Haven area. I owned a fitness studio for about eight years and have since uh, a couple of years ago, I um, closed the studio down and now do probably eighty percent of my health and fitness stuff online where I have a pretty large reach. so it's very convenient because now, um, my reach has expanded beyond New Haven and uh, I can reach women worldwide. I'm um, an admitted Facebook addict. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> I just love the, the reach that it allows us to have the network um, and allows me to spread my message even further, which is encouraging women in particular to uh, be more intentional on what they eat and how they move. Mm. Before we hear
1: more about uh, this online community uh, that you have, as well as your career through the years, I wanted to find out what drew you to health and fitness. Tell us about
0: your upbringing. So what drew me to health and fitness is really my experience um, growing up as a kid. You know, I am number five of six children. Um, my little sister is seven years younger than I am, and when my mom got pregnant with her, she got gestational diabetes, and it just never went away. It went from gestational diabetes to insulin-dependent diabetes in a very short amount of time. So I don't remember much of my childhood without my mother taking um, insulin shots and. her us being conscious that today wasn't a good day for her because of her insulin, or reminding her that that did make sure you pack your insulin when when we were getting ready to go someplace. And so I saw her for many years really struggle with uh, managing her diabetes. Now at the time it was just a normal childhood for me, but when I uh, got older and I really understood what diabetes. Were, was doing to her body, it really put in um, retrospect how how much impact it made on my childhood. You know, one of the stories that I tell is um, when I learned how to drive. You know, most kids driving is, you know, it's, it's a, a rite of passage. But I actually learned how to drive when I was about 13, not legally. But my mom taught me how to drive, and she literally said to me, you have to learn how to drive because if we're ever out and I don't feel well, you need to be able to take me to the hospital. And so there was a lot of pressure. You know, at the time, I think that I kind of like was excited, but not excited. You know, I was learning how to drive much earlier than any of my, <laughs> my friends, but for the, re- for the wrong reasons. And as an adult, I realized how impactful that was on my childhood, that there were certain responsibilities that I always had to be conscious of. And I actually remember a particular day where – um We were going school shopping. I probably was about 14 or 15, and we went school shopping, and that day actually came where uh, we were shopping in the store, and she started having blurry visions and told me she didn't feel well, and she had forgotten to take her insulin that morning. And she, you know, we had to put all the clothes back on the rack, and she said, "I, I can bring you back later. We just need to get home. And I had to drive home with her, Cautioning me to drive slowly so I wouldn't be, you know, suspected by the police or stopped. And we had to get, and I got her home and for her to take her insulin. And that story really is etched in my memory, especially now that I understand how that was actually not quite a normal childhood. <laughs> and it's it's those experiences that as an adult made me want to really help other women and other families so that that's not what becomes norm in people's households. When you were a teenager, were you worried that you too would get diabetes? Did you see this as something that that,
1: um, being a black woman, we hear about uh, health disparities in the black community, diabetes, the rate is high. This is something that you thought, well, this is something
0: that I may end up getting? You know, it is something that to this day, as a kid and to this day, I just... As they say, I just refuse to claim it. But it is certainly something that we talked about, you know, just as me and my siblings talk about what we inherited from our mom, from, you know, her legs that seemed to stay toned no matter what her weight or size was, to her soft skin. It, we had conversations about who was going to inherit her diabetes. And as a young person, I wasn't sure exactly how to avoid it. But I just knew that I could, and I was like, I'm not going to be the one to get it. And so even today, it's still something that is a concern that I think about all the time. You know, I have – so in addition to uh, diabetes, which runs very strongly on my mom's side, her mother and father had diabetes. My mom had diabetes. My oldest sister now has diabetes. Um, On my father's side, we have a very strong history of high blood pressure. My father died when he was 55 from a stroke induced by high blood pressure. All of his sisters, he was the only boy, all have high blood pressure. And so both of those diseases are really so prevalent and present in my mind in everything that I do around health. Um, and two very common diseases in the African-American community that I hear about and deal with with clients far too often.
1: So what did you do to uh, start this uh, this lifestyle of being healthy and fit? You became a runner?
0: When I was a teenager, that was like the first thing is so funny because I remember – I do remember like the first time I read anything how exercise could affect your health. It was, I I remember it so clearly. It was a Shape magazine article and um, it talked about running and health. And I must have been about 15 and I started getting up at, you know, 630 in the morning and going for a three mile run every morning before school. And I think that that's where it really started. You know, it was a very general article, didn't learn a lot of details, but I knew, okay, if I started exercising, this is one thing that I didn't see in my family. So that's another thing about growing up in a family where disease is prevalent, but the knowledge to prevent that disease is not. Um, You know, people in my family didn't exercise. We were not very versed on how food affected your health. You know, the closest we got to nutrition stuff was my mom is like, uh, scrape the icing off the cake and let me just have the cake. (laughs) It won't make my sugar go up too much. (laughs) And what about education that she received
1: on how to uh, maintain and her diabetes in the sense of not getting too low or too high in her blood sugar?
0: So that is one of the things that in retrospect that I see that she really was not given that information. You know, after I um, became an adult and I became a health and fitness professional, she called me one day and she asked me, she said, you know, it was after a time she had had a really challenging time with her diabetes, and she was uh, experienced a lot of the, many of the side effects, glaucoma, neuropathy, lots of difficulties with her diabetes, and her doctor referred her to a nu- nutritionist, and she called me, and she's like, oh, my doctors have referred me to this nutritionist. Do you think that I should go? And I said to her, I said, you've had diabetes for 25 years. Nobody ever referred you to a nutritionist, and she's like, No. And that was such a light bulb moment for me because... I realized at that moment that all of the time in our childhood when we thought she was just being hardheaded or stubborn or just not listening, um, she literally did not know. So she said things like scrape the icing off the cake because her doctor just gave her general instructions like stop drinking Pepsi and decrease your sugar to stop eating so much sugar. It wasn't anything um Specific or any type of knowledge that was specific to her diabetes, and explained to her exactly how insulin works and why you have to uh, limit the amount of carbohydrates and where carbohydrates come from. She literally had no idea. And I think that that was the moment that I really felt this, um, this urge to help women understand not just the fact that uh, this is what you eat, kind of like giving you a diary of our menu as to what to eat. But when I talk to people, whether I'm doing a Facebook Live or I'm talking to a client, really help people understand the physiology behind what's happening to your body when you eat this thing. And this is how you can use it to benefit you or for it not to benefit you. What is a healthier choice? What is the most healthful choice? So that really prompted me to to really help educate people.
1: I understand that your mother passed away just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to, to hear that. Mm-hmm. Did she pass away from diabetes-related
0: complications? She did. She passed away from diabetes-related complications, starting off with just a simple procedure to k- kind of um, help correct her glaucoma, and that turned into um, her having a full stroke while she was there in the hospital for that procedure. Um, she was uh, paralyzed from that stroke completely on one side, um, and everything just kind of deteriorated from there. Every, she's, in the end, she had um, uh, limbs amputated, and uh, uh, the final thing that she developed was dementia.
1: Do you feel if she'd gotten the tools much earlier again uh, to to uh, maintain uh, this diabetes, to so have a healthier lifestyle, that she'd still be here with you?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that it makes it makes such a huge difference. Diabetes in particular is a diet dependent illness, and you can really both prevent it and significantly mitigate. All of the effects of diabetes by what you actually eat um, and how you move. So those things are so incredibly important in people improving their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm
1: speaking with Mubaraka Ibrahim, a health and happiness coach based in New Haven, Connecticut, here on where we live. Uh, you mentioned that uh, when you became an adult, you really dedicated your life to health and, and fitness and to help others uh, in your community. Uh, you have a, a new book coming out related mm-hmm. to, again, this effort to educate others, to help people uh, become uh, healthy. Tell us about the book.
0: Absolutely. So um, the book is called MR40, The Metabolic Reset, in 40. Days. And what the book is really trying to get people to do is to reset their metabolism in a way by choosing very specific foods and uh, foods that are not only going to help a person lose weight but also become healthier along the way so both of those and it's interesting because we tend to think that they both go together but they don't always go together right you can lose weight in a very unhealthy way and it doesn't benefit you and your overall health so the book uses a combination of making sure that people ingest healthy fats um, as well as decreasing their carbohydrates and adopting intermittent fasting, which has so much science behind it in helping people to, um, not just with weight loss, but uh, the the process of intermittent fasting. It literally, as I, I use detox in quotations, we're on radio, so you can't see my quotation mm-hmm. fingers, but, <laughs> but really... Um, um, from a cellular lev- level clean out all of the uh, the cells that we develop throughout our days that are broken that are used it really speeds up that process and it even has been shown to increase your brain function by increasing brain cells and that is such a huge game changer in the process of becoming healthier and and increasing both your vitality and the length of your, your, your life. Uh, you know from working, uh, again, with people in your
1: community, with this online community that you have, we are inundated with information on how to get healthier, whether mm. it's the latest diet or don't eat this, eat this, or it's not about exercise, it's about what you eat, or if you just focus on um, you know, trimming down what you're eating that you'll see results, but then we plateau. Mm. And people get frustrated. How do, you, how do you work with your clients on that?
0: So, when, so the interesting thing about reaching a plateau is I find that a lot of people think that they're at a plateau, but they're not because they base it on one number, which is the scale. So the first thing that I do when people say I've hit a weight loss plateau is I say, uh, why do you think it's a plateau? Well, the numbers on the scale haven't moved. But have you taken your measurements? Have you taken your body fat? Have you uh, looked at your fitness journal and see are you getting stronger? So all of those things are really measurements for a plateau. But if it is a true plateau, which, which in my definition is you're using three numbers of measurement and none of those three have changed in two weeks or more, then we can look at changing up your macronutrients, where you're getting your foods from. We can look at changing up the type of exercise that you're doing. Because generally people say, which is which is not bad advice, you know, find something that you really love and just do that. And that works in getting you into the habit, but what happens is your body adapts to it, and so you might have to come out your comfort zone a little bit to get that plateau broken. And so we can look at, you know, if you've been riding a bike every day for your cardio, let's look at, you know, what happens if you start running. What happens if you take a kickboxing class? Yeah, right? those things will actually put you in what we call muscle confusion, and generally will help break that plateau.
1: We mentioned your book, MR40 Method, the science-based eating method that's guaranteed to melt away stubborn body fat and reset your metabolism. Did I get it all in Yes. <laughs> that's, a lot. that's coming out in May, Mubaraka. Uh, but I also wanted to talk about uh, how you've been making an impact in the New Haven community, especially as an entrepreneur. I understand you're executive director of the nonprofit Fit Haven. What is that?
0: Yes. So Fit Haven really developed out of that conversation that I had with my mother that I mentioned earlier when I really sat and I thought about kind of like that aha of people need to understand what they need to eat and how they need to move. And I had a particular interest in helping women of color and women in uh, um, socioeconomic uh, challenged areas. And so Fit Haven is an effort of creating a, accessible ways to move for them as well as um, health and nutrition education. So we have done a variety of things working with women and girls of all ages. So we have done after-school programs inside of um, King Robinson Elementary School for young girls. And it's a two-day-a-week program where one day we do movement. And I, I intentionally use the word movement because we know we try to expose them to lots of different uh, types. So Zumba one day, yoga one day, uh, you know, just playing a day, just really trying to get them to move. And then on another day, we do a nutrition class. So we may talk about how to read food labels. The goal for us by the end of the, we've we've done it in six week sessions. So each time by the end of the six week session, our goal is for the young girls to understand um, the difference between a carbohydrates, a uh, fat, and a protein, for them to know how to read a food label and for them to understand how to make healthier choices, right? So they're, they're, they're young. They're between... 3rd um, grade and 8th grade, and so we don't expect them never to eat a bag of chips, right, or never to have any candy, but we try to teach them what moderation means and how to choose a healthier choice um, of the two. So if you are really thirsty, maybe you don't want to, don't go for the juice first or the soda first, drink some water first and see if that gets rid of your thirst before you may decide to have juice, or let's talk about splitting juice, half juice, half seltzer water, and and see how that tastes, and if that will be a better option, and see if you like that. So, try to really teach them how to make healthier choices. So, as a stepping stone, to, you know, to uh, certainly increase their health uh, as they get older.
1: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today is Mubaraka Ibrahim. She's a health and happiness coach. Besides having a new book out next month, Ibrahim has a nonprofit that helps women and families in the New Haven area. More about how that project is making an impact, that's right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Mubaraka Ibrahim is a Muslim American woman and an entrepreneur living in New Haven. She's built a career on helping women and families become healthier. And next month, her new book will be released. It's called MR40 Method. Earlier, Ibrahim talked about the book that focuses on learning to eat healthy fats, decreasing carbohydrates, while also including occasional fasting. She also has a New Haven-based nonprofit to help women and girls. So through this nonprofit Fit Haven, you're uh, teaching uh, young people healthy uh, information on healthy eating, on exercise. But what's been the response, the outcomes after they leave the program? Because it is hard to maintain uh, this lifestyle. Um, if it doesn't become a habit, and we know there's lots of temptation out there. Right.
0: So for the, for the young girls, you know, I, we, we did not necessarily follow up with them, say like a year after and, and, and survey them. But when I do running, I live in the New Haven community, and when I do run, in, run into them, I'm always happy when I hear the moms tell me things like, you know, she never would eat broccoli before, and now she loves it. Or, uh, you know, it's always been a struggle for me to have her drink water, and now she reminds me to put water inside of her her lunchbox. So the kids are, they certainly do uh, learn and try to apply them. Um, I think for young kids, the important thing is for the parents to actually support them along the way. So I think that that has been, um, that has been probably one of the, 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 key components of keeping it long term. When the parents are supportive, then the kids tend to stay consistent, at least with a a few of the, the, um, the things that they learn. You
1: mentioned uh, parents becoming supportive. Are they also making uh, healthier choices themselves as they see their, their kids learning about, uh, you know, the importance of exercise and eating certain foods?
0: I think, well, I like to think so. <laughs> so the other arm of our, um, or the other effort of Fit Haven is really to educate the moms as well and educate the women. So a couple of reasons why we do that is we know that even in two-parent households, households, the woman is 80% more likely to be the one to grocery shop and to cook. And so if we can get women to change the way that they see food, the way that they see movements, we are confident that we can change the entire family. Um, Because if the mom is putting fruits and vegetables on the table to grab as an after-school snack, that's going to make a difference as to what the kids have access to. And so we really try to uh, educate um, women as well. So um, a couple of summers ago, we got um, the Connecticut Health Foundation President's Grant to do an exercise and nutrition program for women. And we did it in a way where they enrolled inside of a six week program. It was exercise three days a week and one day a week there was a nutrition class that was given by a dietitian. Now to enroll, we had we gave them an incentive. You enroll, you did have to pay something up front, but if you attend eighty percent of the classes, then you are reimbursed at the end of the six week. And we had a good ninety-five percent consistency of people we had to give their money back which we were happy to do that (laughs) and part of that was educating them about um how to shop in a store so we did grocery store tours we had uh actual cooking workshops. We even gave workshops about couponing and how do you eat healthy on a budget. Um, And even that requires some, you know, very strategic moves because you can certainly coupon and buy lots of (laughs) (laughs) Pop-Tarts. But how do you do it in a way that's going to help you be able to make healthier choices in the store? And so that was a very successful program. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned uh, working uh,
1: with uh, families in the New Haven community uh, that may have challenges uh, socioeconomically. Uh, We hear often uh, just the rhetoric from Washington about um, how families who may participate in SNAP, so this is the Supplemental Mm -hmm. Nutrition um, Assistance Program, um, making choices for them in terms of what is healthy there's even this proposal to send a box to them of, mm. of having a, a food a once a month. I mean what's your reaction to how um, the importance of eating well and and being healthy like how that trickles down you know from Washington?
0: I think that 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 proposal in particular was very uh, in, interesting to me. <laughs> to say the least. Number one, I think that it was interesting coming from this particular administration. The same administration and the same group of people who were very um they were very outspoken by Uh, ideas of what some of our own uh, um, representatives in Washington have proposed, uh, the tax on sugar, for example, which Rosa DeLore proposed. And they've been very um, boisterous about people need to have the right to choose and eat whatever they want. But yet it seems that this proposal indicates, except for if you're poor, (laughs) So I think that that's hypocritical. One, you know, if we have the freedom that we shouldn't be taxed on sugar in sodas and in drinks and things like that, then why is it that if you happen to be poor, if you happen to need help, then that help takes away your freedom to choose. I think that it's it's po- problematic in that respect. And just in terms of um healthy eating in particular, the things that they propose to include inside of of the boxes, um nutrition certainly was not <laughs> the 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 goal in making up this box. And there's lots of logistical um logistical questions that haven't been answered. So what do you do with people with allergies? You know, they're proposing milk and um, and peanut butter. And, you know, peanut allergies in the last 20 years have literally increased by 50%. One in every 13 children have some type of food allergy. That's a significant amount. How, what are you going to do in order for you to compensate for the, those those people and what do you do if you know people just simply can't cook the beans <laughs> they just don't have the knowledge there's going to be an education process of how to cook because you would be surprised that that is actually a skill that a lot of people have challenges with. And that's why we have so many processed foods and boxed foods, because people have challenges with just knowing how to cook things from scratch. And so, uh, you know, that's a concern. And that there's no fresh fruits and vegetables even included in this. I think that we are... um, The news media itself has has romanticized it by simply using the word blue apron type. It's not a blue apron type. You know, when people Google blue apron and you see all of these healthy foods in a box is being delivered to people that they're paying for. That's not what the government's going to be delivering you. You know, when I was a kid. I was on welfare and I there was times that we had to go to uh, the local pantry to get food. And I remember what the big blocks of government cheese looked like. It didn't, didn't look like what Blue Apron is delivering. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of concerns around that.
1: Uh, we asked you a little bit about your nonprofit, Fit Haven. Is this something that's being replicated?
0: How do you find support for it? So, so far it has it's not being replicated in other places and finding support for it has been interesting. <laughs> so we did we, we can't say that we have not been without support. I think people were are very supportive of the idea. Um, but one of the things that which I don't think is unique to our organization is that um, um, just wanting to teach people how to move and to eat healthy is challenging in getting larger grants, partly because there's this trend towards a granting organization that wants innovative and new ways of doing things. And, you know, in our aspect, it's really not that complicated. <laughs> you know, it's really about access, access to expertise, access to uh, Facility and access to information, and that's what we propose to help people. So we have had some success in the past in getting funding, but we still struggle in getting the kind of like the larger. We've had, um, we've actually gotten grants from Walmart. We've gotten grants from the Connecticut Foundation, from the Graustein Foundation, um, and people who are in the community have been extremely generous as well. But we we're still in need of funding. <laughs>
1: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchil. Mubaraka Ibrahim is a New Haven-based health and happiness coach. She also has followers in an online community where she helps Muslim women adopt healthier lifestyles. More on that after the break. First, it's WNPR's Spring Fundraising Drive. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support programming like where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm talking with Mubaraka Ibrahim, a health and happiness coach. She has a nonprofit called Fit Haven that helps women and their families choose a healthier diet and an active lifestyle in the New Haven area. Her career has led her to the White House and even being interviewed by Oprah. Ibrahim has also made efforts to help women in the Muslim community. You're also a Muslim American woman. Uh, Walk us through your upbringing and as an adult, uh, what are some of the perceptions that
0: you encounter? So I am African-American. I was born and raised Muslim. My parents are both African-American and they both converted to Islam. So me and all of my brothers and sisters, we were born Muslim and we are now the second of now five generations of Muslims, African American Muslims born and raised in the United States. Um, I think it's, it's been the last, I would say, since 9 11 has really changed the, um, the way Muslims um, live in America and the way that we perceive, we are perceived, and how we perceive where we live. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, and it's and it's been it's been quite interesting because even though there is there's um, a lot of Islamophobia, there is also a lot of support, and so it's really a very bipolar time for Muslims in America right now. I can't say that it's all bad because we've had certainly um, just as much of the people support us as people who have... um, who show, showed um, dislike for Muslims for whatever reason. So it's been quite it's been an interesting journey to say the least. Um, I think the biggest perception in um, or misperception really is when people see me, they think that I'm from someplace else. And uh, they ask me what country. I was, I'm from. And when I say America, they ne- generally say, so what country is uh, your parents from? And mm-hmm. so my uh, response as of late in order to satisfy their curiosity is I tell them that they are from the exotic land of Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Definitely a different culture in Brooklyn. <laughs> but, ma- but maybe they,
0: they ask you these
1: questions because you do wear a, a hijab. So mm-hmm. very few parts of your body are uh, uncovered. As someone who has made a career in the health and fitness uh, world, um, has that community, is that welcoming to Muslim women?
0: Um, I think that we certainly have to kind of like um, stake our claim particularly in the health and fitness community. I When I go to uh, conferences or conventions with other health and fitness professionals, it, it certainly, I do get a kind of like, what is she doing here kind of look. <laughs> look. Um, but it, it puts me in an, um, an interesting position, particularly as a fitness trainer, because I don't look like the average fitness trainer. So, generally what happens is when I am doing things like teaching boot camp or things like that I have to show by example I have to I can't show my fitness level by the clothes I wear so I have to physically show my fitness level so if I am telling clients to do a sprint I always do the sprint first so they, are assured that I'm actually telling you something that I am doing that I know you can do, that I know how to do. So it puts me in a position of certainly uh, maintaining my healthy fitness. <laughs> what do you wear when you're exercising? So, I, so the general um, rule for a Muslim woman's dress kind of like at minimum is that we cover everything but our face and our hands. So other than that, kind of like all bets are off, right? <laughs> so as long as uh, our body is covered and things are not form fitting, then uh, we can wear pretty much anything that we want. So, generally, I try to wear a long shirt that uh, goes about mid thigh and just a pair of loose pants like joggers or um, workout pants that are not tight fitting. So, no uh, yoga pants or stretch pants, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, some loose fitting pants. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, with certain sports, it's uh, they don't even allow Muslim women to play. Mm-hmm. A lot of attention uh, during the Olympics in 2016 with Ibtihaj Muhammad mm-hmm. becoming uh, the first Muslim woman athlete competing for America to wear the hijab during the mm-hmm. Rio Olympics. What did that moment mean to you when you saw her?
0: That was such a significant moment for our, for our me personally and for the Muslim community. She is certainly um, has a high standing and high level of respect and admiration in the entire community. It really meant that Muslim women were given a stage based on their ability and not based on any preconceived notions about uh, what we were wearing. So she earned her spot, um, fully earned her spot, which was amazing. um the talent of being a fencer, which is much difficult, much more difficult than it looks <laughs> mm-hmm. um and it really d- did really gave us kind of like that we are going to be at least have some type of equal footing of proving our worth um we don't want anything handed to us. We just want the chance to prove that we deserve it. And she certainly did that. And she, I think that that was a, a nod for the whole community, that you, you have that opportunity. I mentioned uh, this
1: uh, athlete as a, a role model in a way uh, because of who she is. But how do you, do you see yourself as a role model for Muslim women? How do you reach them?
0: <laughs> um, so I try to be <laughs> kind of, you know, after um, being on Oprah and you're being seen by ten million people, you gotta just like have to take it as well, it tell, comes. tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So about I guess it's been about nine years ago. So I was a guest on the Oprah Winfrey Show. I was the job you'd never expect because uh, I was a Muslim woman that. Oh, that was a health and fitness professional. You know, I owned a fitness studio. And so it was really funny because the day before the um, the interview, uh Aired on TV, I know that the day before she shows like this preview. And so I was actually at work and the next door neighbor, it was a, a T-shirt shop. He had a TV. And so I go in there at like 350 and I'm like, okay, my commercial is going to come on. And she talks about like, we're talking to women all across America, 30 something and what their lives is like. And then at the very end, she goes, and the job you'd never expect. And they show me walking into my fitness studio, but they completely blurred out my face. <laughs> I was like I promise that's me <laughs> and the guy is looking at me like yeah okay <laughs> I, I didn't know I was going to be the surprise guest right so it was actually it was it was amazing she um, and her personality is certainly exactly the way we see her on TV that is at least she's I can say she's authentic to herself but after her 30 year show I have the distinct honor of saying that as far as I know, I am the only African American Muslim woman who have ever sat on her yellow couch. <laughs> <laughs> That's something to put
1: on your LinkedIn profile. You know? <laughs> But Mubaraka, I had asked about um, you being a role model to other Muslim women. You mentioned you have this uh, following now, Mm -hmm. thanks to social media. How are you reaching uh, women, again, Muslim women who want to be fit? And maybe they felt there were limitations before, but they see you and they
0: see that, you know, you found a way. You know, I I really do try to... Uh, talk about that and post about that, that our clothes is not a limitation to the things that we can do. Um, one of the interesting opportunities that I've that I had about um, three years ago, I actually uh, got a contract to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, I was uh, pres- I did a three-day health and fitness summit for the women of the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. Amazing opportunity to be able to go there, but the interesting thing that they said to me and one of the reasons why they wanted me to come is that they were kind of doing a social experiment of sorts on this university campus, and they wanted They were interested in me in particular because I can show that you can practice your religion and do Western things like exercise. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that's I guess that's what I represent. You know, you get you don't have to compromise. Um you know, the way that you dress or your any of your religious principles in order for you to exercise and eat healthy. And, in fact, it just enhances everything else. Um, and, I, and I take it in stride. You know, I try to be authentic in everything that I put out. Um, I don't put out anything that I really don't believe that is effective, and I try to educate people and meet them where they are. So, you know, I don't particularly... Um, um, tell people you should never do this or you should never do that. But kind of like find a healthier way that um, enhances your lifestyle, whatever that is. And everybody's at a different level. So try to meet people where they are. That's the most important thing to me.
1: We mentioned your book earlier. It's Again, it's coming out in May. Uh, in the title, um, it talks about melting away, stubborn body fat, resetting your metabolism, You know, people can look at that and be skeptical Mm. because there's so, again, so much advice out Mm. there. Um, You know, what makes your book different?
0: Because it's actually based on the science and the research. You know, I think that uh, those are in ways catchphrases and the problem that we have with misinformation as much as I love social media is social media. (laughs) You know, you you have people sharing these posts, you eat this one fruit or this one vegetable, and you'll lose seven pounds in seven days. And I constantly, sometimes I will share those things, just to comment to people that there's no science behind this, that this is not true. I think the important thing is that you can reset your metabolism. You can melt fat. There is so much research around it, but you're not going to drink a tablespoon of vinegar every morning and do that. <laughs> right? So there are certain things that work and there are certain things that are just folklore. And I think that it's important that we focus on the science behind what actually works.
1: Mubaraka Ibrahim, again, health and happiness coach based in New Haven, Connecticut. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, me. I'm Lucy nolpeth Where We Live is produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. It's also our spring fundraising campaign. If you appreciate programs like Where We Live here on Connecticut Public Radio, please support this radio station. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.